Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. We are in a series called Jesus People, and this series is about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus today? And one of the things I've seen in the church is we've made discipleship really about knowing a lot of things or programs, and it has nothing to do with what Jesus intended. You see, Jesus intended for you as a Christian, as a disciple, to live in a way that would reflect him in the world. And right now, the church needs to do better at PR for Jesus. Would you agree? Like, the, the image we're reflecting back into the world is not what Jesus looks like in the New Testament. So our whole idea is we want to look at the scriptures and see how he intended discipleship to be and then reflect that into the world. And my, my view is simply this, that the longer you hang out with Jesus, the, the, the more time you spend in the scriptures becoming the kind of person Jesus intended you to be, the more over time peace you'll experience joy, gentleness, self-control, love that will be manifested not with sonnets and songs and cool warm fuzzies inside your life, but expressed externally in the people around you. And that's what I want to talk about today. Something we've been talking about the last two weeks is scripture. How many of you have been here for this? Like two weeks ago, I talked about the Bible as worldview. Do you have your Bibles? We just pull them out. We're going to go to Matthew in a second. Let me see those Bibles. I love the, yeah, let's go. Look at that. If you don't have a Bible, you can go online and get a Bible app and pull out your idol that you brought in here. Ooh, you know it is. I was sitting next to some of you. I'm looking at you in your group chats as we're talking about communion. It's cool. I get it. We've been talking about how we're being formed into the image of God. You see, and the truth is we cannot compete. We, the church, Jesus can't compete with the cultural formation you are participating in every day you live. You wake up, mindlessly scroll, and participate in a consumer, narcissistic, self-driven, agenda-driven culture that's shaping your behaviors, your thoughts, and ideologies. That's just the reality that we face. That's your phone. You have to intentionally choose to opt out. I'm not saying get off, be off all of those things. I'm saying recognize the power it has over your life so that you can intentionally be formed by Jesus in his way. So we're going to go to Matthew 22. I'm going to read this. But one of the themes we've been talking about is this idea of the role of Scripture in our spiritual formation. If you're not uh, familiar with that phrase, that just means the process of becoming like Jesus. If you've been in the church for a while, there's another word. It's called sanctification. It's the same thing. We believe when you come to faith, you're accepted as you are, not as you should be. But there is a process of becoming more like Jesus. And that seems religious, but really that process is you becoming the truest version of yourself. <clears throat> the person God intended you to be in the first place. A person not marked by the sin and brokenness and the despair and the internal war and, and, and anxiety and depression and self-hate, the fears. A person actually marked by the other things, joy and peace and love and forgiveness and grace and gratitude and healing and wholeness. And that's the story we want you to live in. Does that make sense? So today <clears throat> we're going to look at this word that would be the summary of the entire Old and New Testament teachings. How's that for a good talk? 
This would be how the Old and New Testament works itself out in life. Now, we've been talking about scripture. One of the things I love that Pastor Mike preached last week was that we look at spiritual formation in the, uh, uh, through the lens of individualism today. And we can't help it because we're swimming in a culture of individualism. So we read the scriptures and we're like, okay, I got to do this for myself. This is me and Jesus in the Bible. And what Mike challenged last week is the role of scripture has to be lived and experienced in a covenanted community. Spiritual formation is not you, yourself, and Jesus with your Bible alone. In fact, the New Testament commands 59 different one another statements, meaning there are 59 commands that you have to live out and you can't live those out without other people. All the introverts are like, I'm out. <laughs> All the extroverts are like, yes, t go. But here's the point, we need each other. And the, so one of the things that we struggle to recognize is the role of both the community in living out our faith with God and the role of scripture in community of living out our faith with God. And the, the word that would best summarize this and summarize the entire ethic of the Old and New Testament and the vision for Jesus for how we relate is this word compassion. Now, I know some of you are already checking out. You're like, oh, forget that. I wanna give you like an Old Testament vision for this and then a New Testament uh, reflection and then land with some practical stuff. Does that sound okay? If not, you can leave. Go. It's okay. I'm not going to force you here. But if you're here, let's just let's just make the most of it. Would you open your hands? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this local community of faith where we get to see families dedicate their loved ones, that we get to be a baptized community, a dedicated community to a local space, time, place, with real people in the flesh. I thank you that your grace is enough. And I know that so many of us carry so many different hesitations about being a part of a church. We carry church hurt and wounds. And I pray for the guests that are here that they would just feel your presence and see you in a new way. I pray that as a church, we would open your word and come alive in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at this. So we're looking at a characteristic that's described, uh, uh, sorry, a characteristic that Jesus is, how do I say this? A characteristic that describes Jesus. Lord Jesus, give me help. <clears throat> Matthew 22, I promise I preach, I use words a lot. Um, Matthew 22, this is uh, uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 22, it's a very f familiar text. Uh, one of them, this is 22 verse 35, it says this, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we read this in context. Let me just say, in the, in the first century, uh, teachers of the law, Jewish uh, religious folks would want a, sum, a summary of all of the Old Testament scriptures. So it was very common, like we have a scorecard for the top teams of, of the NFL. In the first century uh, Jewish community, there was like a ranking of the laws in order, and they would try to summarize all the laws with the least amount of laws as possible. And so this is the common question, like what's your summary of the entire 613 commands of the Old Testament? And at the time of Jesus, there were two uh, uh, competing rabbis that had two different variations. There's one rabbi that says that what Jesus says, and then there's another rabbi, and Jesus sides with one. So that's an interesting contextual example. But this is Jesus' response. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one rabbi had that. Another rabbi had the second greatest commandment as to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. The Pharisees loved the be holy. They didn't love this one. But this is an application, okay? This is an application of what love for God looks like. Let me, let me make sure you understand this. When Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, he connects loving God with your relationship to other people. In other words, there is a direct connection between how you treat people and your love for God. You cannot disconnect the two. You can't go, I'm worshiping God with my little playlist and my Bible and a, lit, a scented candle that smells like Christmas <laughs> and not live it out in how you live your love, uh, in loving relationship to community. You can't disconnect the two. And we love to disconnect the two. We love to privatize our faith when it's designed to be expressed in community. This is that word, compassion. Now, before I get to compassion, let's go to the, the text that this comes from. Because remember we talked about Jesus being immersed in the scriptures? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy so frequently. In fact, 10% of all of his teaches, teachings recorded in the New Testament are Old Testament references. So go to Deuteronomy chapter six. And this is, this is why I think this is important. Jesus frames his teaching from an Old Testament lens. And I love that because uh, we often, we, we come out as Christian, Christians, we come out of this Jewish faith. Now, Moses wrote the book Deuteronomy. Couple of Old Testament references. I just wanna give you some context. Deuteronomy is one of the five books of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. The Torah basically translates to way of life. This was not a law. It wasn't a law. It wasn't rituals and regulations. This was about how to live as the people of God. And Deuteronomy is the last book Moses writes, and he writes it for this purpose. Would you go to that other slide, Ari, um, where it talks about the why, why does Deuteronomy exist? this, uh, Moses writes this as a pastoral sermon. He writes this uh, contextualizing the story of redemption, explaining the law to a new generation for a new cultural moment. So the purpose of Deuteronomy is Moses recognizes there's an entire new generation of Israelites that are about to enter into the promise being fulfilled that they were gonna occupy land, promised to Abraham, and they're going in and now they're gonna have land that's filled with milk and honey. They're gonna be able to expand and live in abundance. And the purpose is this pastoral urgency to take the, the rest of the Torah and co connect it, uh, contextualize the entire Old Testament, so that the new generation lives it out. And so Deuteronomy has all sorts of references to the heart. It's not about just knowing the law. It's about getting the law into your heart. And here's what uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says. This is the great command that, that Jesus quotes. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, circle heart, soul, and strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your phones. No, no. <laughs> to be on your hearts. So this is what's called in the Jewish tradition, the Shema. Shema would be like 
the summary of summaries for the entire ethic of Judaism. This is the summary of all of the commands. And so the Jewish community will take this and they will say over and over again, uh, Shema Yisrael, that word Shema means to hear or to obey. Uh, Adonai, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which is this Hebrew s- summary, this state of the union, this confession, this creed of when you pray that prayer, you're, sum- you're essentially saying all of the commands of the Old Testament, I believe, uh, you're stating all of the things that are about the Old Testament. It's this massive statement. And so they would say it when they woke up, they would say it when they eat a meal, when they walk into a room. So Jesus is simply quoting something that would have been shared all the time. Are you with me? Now, let me give you some Hebrew definitions around the things we're supposed to love God with. I already said that he connects love for God with loving each other, but he, I want to just add, because there's rich depth to Hebrew. English has um, more language, more words, excuse me, than Hebrew language. And so the Hebrew language has more meaning, more depth, more significance in the words they choose to use. So there's three things that are commands for us to love God. Number one is our heart. Heart is not your emotions. It's more than that. It's your will and your mind to the Hebrew consciousness that you are, it's the control center of our lives, the inner self. But also recently I've just discovered this and it's changing my view of what's being commanded. Another description for loving God with your heart is to love God with your allegiances and your values. What does that do with love? Well, it, 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 it forces you to move from the internal to the external. Because now your values are expressed not by ideas or uh, subjects. They're expressed through behaviors with values. Does that make sense? Now, love the Lord your God with your soul. Uh, Part of the problem today is we are more influenced by Plato and Greek thought than Hebrew understanding of the soul. What do I mean by that? Well, Western thinking differentiates the spirit and uh, and the physical materialism is the observable world, but we don't, we don't live with that worldview. A Jewish or a Christian mindset recognizes that you don't have a soul, you are a soul. Is that all right? What do I mean? When God creates humanity, it says in Genesis chapter two, he takes Adam out of dust and he breathes Ruach, the spirit, into Adam, and that's when he becomes human. Humans are fully spiritual, fully physical, embodied. So even when we look at the reality of the New Testament, what we see is Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, has what? A physical body. The, we, when we are resurrected from the dead, we will have embodied lives. We're not going to be floating around with wings like Casper the Friendly Ghost. We're going to have physical bodies like we do now. This is the way it was intended to be. Does this make sense? So we will live when we die. We will live in a spiritual being until we have physical bodies raised. Are you guys good with that? This is just good theology. So in other words, when God says to love, when Moses says to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, he's talking about a whole person, our physical, our embodied self, but also the Hebrews translate it to your words and your actions. Again, moving away from this individual thing I can do by myself, now manifesting in how I treat people. So if I'm, I'll, great, I have a great quiet time in the morning before my kids wake up, but as soon as they wake up, I'm a jerk. I'm impatient. I'm not being the loving presence that I need to be because I'm irritable and hungry. I may, I'm just speaking for the rest of you. That's not how I am ever. 
You're like, wow, you're really petty, Darren. <laughs> yes, I need a load of grace to get me through the mornings. But it's, how, it's expressed in human behavior and relationships. Even as we, so we cannot love God with our soul without the actions and words being filled with love. Isn't that interesting? And then we get to strength. And I love strength because the best definition is like uh, muchness or essence of the word strength. Might, muchness, essence. Um, One translation is like the very, the atoms of your being are loving God. The quarks that make up the atoms are loving God. Isn't that amazing? But then it went further and it ties it to your influence and relationships are a way of loving Yahweh. So imagine knowing that going, all right, every time you say the Shema and you're summarizing the Torah, you understand that every facility in your soul is designed to be expressed towards God in a loving relationship and towards each other. You cannot disconnect the two. Are you guys with me? So that's, that's where the Deuteronomy comes from, and that's where Jesus makes the command. But I just want to add a couple more details to Deuteronomy. And I went long in the first service, and I'm not going to go as long because you guys are highly favored. And, but, but there's some practicals. So if you keep reading Deuteronomy chapter 6, this phrase, the Shema, where love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, it will be a pattern throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So if you read Deuteronomy, you're going to see this phrase used over and over again. And anytime you come across in the Old Testament, phrases used multiple times, just know it's a pattern or a structure. And whenever you see structure in the landscape of a book, it provides meaning. You with me? So in this case, the very next phrases, which Pastor John read for all of you parents that dedicated your kids about uh, uh, what happens next. Would you go to that passage? The very next phrase. So how, he gives you the how. How do you love God? How do you embody this love for God? Well, well, he gives you three practical ways to love God. And all of them involve community. Again, we can't divorce this and make this an individual expressed uh, relationship with me, myself, and Jesus that's not existent in the Bible. It's always expressed in community. So the first thing you do is you tie them as symbols on your hand, bind them on your foreheads. He gives you this passage about making, like talk about them with your kids when they, go, when they lie down. What is he saying? He's saying, well, live the word of God. Live the commands. Create an environment where you meditate and marinate on the word of God and it's around you so that it's not this static Bible study. You're talking about this thing that you need your kids to know or your friends need to know this. No, no, become a living example of the word. We talk about following Jesus, becoming like Jesus. Jesus was what? The embodiment of the word. Now they saw in person the living Torah. He was Torah. He is the fulfillment of Torah. So when they're questioning him about the law of Moses, he can say, I am. Do you see how profound this is? You want to know about don't kill each other? Let me tell you what I meant by that because I am the word. I mean, don't be inappropriately angry towards each other. That's the heart of the law. And when you embody the heart, you don't need boundaries, fences, because it's at the center of your being. And what will flow out of you is compassion. But then there's another one. It keeps going on. And it's uh, the second practice. He goes on, go to Deuteronomy chapter six, um, verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 20. He says, when your sons ask about this, 
They want to know what's the meaning of all of the stipulations and decrees. Just tell them that, hey, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And it goes on to talk about this, this, this phrase, and you'll see it all over the Old Testament. You were once slaves in Egypt, but I set you free. Have you, have you read this lots of times in Exodus and Deuteronomy and all, and all the prophets? Yes, it is a, a, a creed designed to get you in the story. So what's, what's the practical way that we live out love for God? We live in the redemptive story of God. So how do you train people to get the law into their hearts? They live the word and then they live in the story. So generations from now, when grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents have their kids, their kids are gonna go, hey, why are we eating this meal? Why do we take communion on Sunday? Why is Sunday dedicated to the Lord? Why do we give generously to the church? Why do we tell people about Jesus? We say, because we live in the story of redemption, that once we were made and it was good it doesn't start in chapter three it starts in chapter one and two when God created us in his image and likeness and said it is very good but then we had a choice and we rebelled against God but God did not leave us to our own he sent on a loving mission a full frontal attack against the assault of the enemy that was first through Abraham Second through Israel. Third through the embodiment of Jesus. Fourth through the life, death, resurrection, and the cross, and now the reigning ascension of Jesus. Now commissioned to the agency of grace, the church, until Jesus comes back and restores creation back to the way it was intended to be in chapters one and two. What story are you living? That's my story. Are you here living in chapter three? Yes. Some of you don't know the redemptiveness of Jesus Christ and the invitation to salvation. I was talking to somebody in the first service, somebody that just gave his life to Jesus three months ago from a friend. And the story of, for two years, he's been friends with somebody in our church. And three months ago, he opened his Bible app in his idol. And it popped up Matthew 5, verse 7. It talked about mercy in the Beatitudes. And his heart was wrenched. And he realized he needed to forgive somebody in his life. And it led him to giving his life to Jesus. Three months as a Christian. He's living testimony of the story of grace we're a part of. So what do you do to live the word or to live out the love of God? You live in the story of God. What's, this is not about you. Your life, you're not the center of your story. Jesus is the center of the story. And you get to be the little extra at the end. The little, the little tip of the hat in this epic battle that's going on. And you got to tip your hat to the king. Are you with me on this? Number three, pro the most important I want to talk about is this idea that comes all over the Old Testament. And this is what's crazy is we've taken this word compassion Oh, I'm going to save that part for a moment. Okay, um, in Deuteronomy, the third practical way we love God is found in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And it says this in chapter 10. Um, this is Moses. Remember, he's trying to get the heart of the law, your, the law of God on your heart. And he, and he says, hey, now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Um, but to fear the Lord your God, walk in obedience, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. So if you're reading this 
It's going to tie you back to the Shema. Here's that pattern. Love the Lord your God with these things. It's tying you back to Deuteronomy 6. So now there's another practical. He goes on to verse 16. He says, hey, circumcise your hearts. Therefore, do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And then verse 18, he introduces a concept that's all over the entire Old Testament. It will be the reason judgment comes on Israel with Babylonians. It will be the reason that God condemns the people of God because they forgot how to love God and because they've forgotten how to love the people God loves. He says, he defends the cause of the orphan and the widow and loves the... uh, and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So he goes on to introduce this concept of the triad. Now I need you to see this. This is so important. He talks about the fatherless, the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners. He says, look, you're going to go into a land that I'm giving you. And there are going to be people in the land that you live in proximity with as my people that won't have enough. They will be powerless and they will be in need. And how you love me is expressed by how you love them. I'm not talking about singing Kumbaya and songs saying, go ahead, I'm going to pray for you. I'm talking about the physical needs of the community of those in need being met by you, my people. Are you with me? The third way we learn to love God and let the, the commands of God reside in our being, in the quarks of our souls, in the atoms of our essence is living with compassion towards those that we're living in community with. We live compassion. We become embodiment of compassion. Now, that's a lot of Old Testament. Let's keep going. Oh, I only got 13 minutes. Is that counting down? Okay, here we go. (laughs) Matthew 14. I could choose a dozen different passages. There's this one passage in Matthew 14. It says this. When Jesus heard what had happened, that John the Baptist was just beheaded, He withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. He's grieving the loss of his cousin. He needs to be alone. He's got all sorts of emotions. He's he's feeling the depth of now being, he once had a partner proclaiming the kingdom. The the guy, the forerunner preparing. Now he's gone. He's on a lonely mission towards the cross. He's feeling all sorts of things. But it says, hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from all the different towns. When he landed and saw the large crowd, he didn't say, sorry guys, I need a vacation. He said, it says he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Let's stop there and we'll go to the next slide. Jesus in the scriptures over and over again is described as a man of compassion. He is moved with compassion. He is filled with compassion. And time and time again, it is compassion that motivates Jesus. Compassion is what moves Jesus to touch the leper. Compassion is what moves Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk. It's compassion that moves Jesus to sit down with the woman at the well and tell her about being the water of life. It's it's compassion that moves Jesus to feed the 5,000. It's compassion that moves Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's compassion that Jesus says, God the Father is like a waiting father who runs after his boy, his prodigal when he returns. It's this feeling of being moved from within. Here's some definitions of compassion. Would you go to that next slide? In compa- the, the word for compassion means to be moved from within, to suffer with. In the Greek, it means your bowels are to be wrenched from within. How's that for graphic? 
But I love the Hebrew translation. So in Hebrew, the word compassion is actually a, a, a plural noun, but it's translated from a singular verb, or sorry, a singular noun, which means womb. So scholars, when they describe God as compassionate, it's to say that God feels towards us the way a loving mother feels towards her unborn child in her womb. How is that? When you think about the God of heavens, the creator of the universe, are you thinking about the kind of love that a mom has for her child in her womb? Let me just give you some theology on this real quick because I really want you to see this and then we'll, we'll talk practically. For Jesus, compassion is in many ways the summation, I'm sorry, the central quality of God and the central moral quality of a life centered in God. So this, this, this idea of compassion is what it looks like to live the kingdom of God wherever you go. It's to feel something that causes you to act towards those around you the way God would act towards the people he loved. Another way to say it is um, the word compassion in many ways is the summation of Jesus' teaching, teachings about God and his kingdom ethics. So if you were to take all the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, you would say the word to describe and summarize the Sermon on the Mount is compassion. Let me say one more thing, and this is rich theology, and just take this in for a moment. For Jesus, compassion was not just a simple individual virtue, but a socio-political paradigm, expressing his alternative vision, i.e. the kingdom of God, for human life in community. It's not an idea about how you feel. It is a vision for a community and an expression of that community. So compassion is a vision for life embodied in the movement that came to exist or in and around Jesus. Now let me address the problem in the room and that's this, the American church. The American church has a lot of problems. Would you agree with this idea of compassion? Don't go to the next one yet. Let me just summarize some thoughts on this. As I was working out, what's the problem with the American church because, uh, and this idea of compassion? Because I've preached on compassion a lot. I preached on the mission of the church. And what happens is we interpret this idea of compassion and we make it about an emotion that we have to experience or feel as an individual rather than the embodiment of a vision that we have for our community. So compassion becomes a department in our church. And it's an expressed event once a year. So we get baskets, which by the way, we have baskets. <laughs> and we need all of you to take baskets to care for our brothers and sisters in our local community that we have said we're gonna partner with them to make sure heaven comes to earth this Thanksgiving through your generosity. Forget generosity, through your sacrifice. You're going to give up lattes for four weeks so that you can provide sustenance for people that don't have enough. Let me say something. When we make it a department, when we make it a, a, a department of the church, rather than a condition of our community, rather than a characteristic and a value that it's lived out through everyone who says, I believe that Jesus is Lord, we give you a release valve. So that pressure you feel when you're exposed to all of the pain around you, you feel better about yourself. You just release some of the steam and pressure. Oh, well, we did serve day this year. 
Oh, we did, we did a Thanksgiving drive. My church is missional. We meet in downtown Long Beach. You create this morality of compassion that, that makes it about something you have no participation in. But let me just say what you did. You just robbed yourself of the first commandment, the greatest commandment. You're failing at the first thing by making it something that they do over here rather than this is the central quality of my life. Oh, that, that hurts a little bit, right? So take a basket. <laughs> but don't let the basket become the way, the mechanism. Let it be something that's a part of your life. Are you with me? But here's the problem in the American church. We worship the idol of self. So compassion is, go to that slide, is about our emotions and it's about individualism and it's the idol of self. What do I mean? Well, uh, um, Carl Truman writes it this way. He says, the modern self finds himself in the midst of what one sociologist has described as a culture of expressive individualism where each of us seeks to give expression to our, inner, our individual inner lives rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities and bound by natural and supernatural laws. So authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths become the norm. What do I mean by that? What does he mean? It means you have to feel something to do it versus the Lord says to do it and you do it out of obedience. And that goes all sorts of ways in our culture today. That is the reason we're seeing the breakdown of all of society. Right there, that we legislate and govern your individual expression rather than we're adhering to natural laws and larger truths. It's submitting ourselves to the biblical paradigm, to the biblical mandate of all the things rather than express individual. Does that make sense? But this, we can, and this is what we do. We want to make it about things that are a culture war rather than recognizing you're, you're complicit in the compassion deficit of the church. I'm gonna let that sit in for a little bit. Marinate on that. The second reason we struggle with compassion is what I would call overexposed. We're overexposed to pain. I don't think humans were designed to see the amount of images we see daily of pain. Like October 7th, by the morning of October 8th, we are witnessing atrocities and we're reading stories of the the terrorist attack in Israel and the evils that have taken place and and then a couple days later we're watching the effects of a hurricane in Mexico and then a couple days later we're watching the rollout of another mass shooting in Maine and we are witnessing these images and this overexposure to trauma and pain causes us to be desensitized to the world and we numb out so rather than actually crying out and lamenting over the broken rather than meditating on the fact that God's world is broken and it needs healing and calling on Jesus and being a part of the solution, we just keep mindlessly scrolling, numbing our hearts. And what I would like to say is that the American church are full of spiritual lepers. Leprosy is the inability to feel. So lepers will lose their fingers and hands and get wounds because they burn themselves that just get exposed because they can no longer feel. And I believe our hearts have become so callous to the needs around us, we no longer feel deeply. Jesus was a man of compassion. Therefore, his disciples should be men and women filled with compassion. Are you with me? The third issue is the culture of contempt. Wait, can I go back? I want to share an illustration about this. Um... 
it's, it's not just an idea, it's lived out. I, I, my friend last Sunday, one of our elders, text a group of friends. He invited us into something he, he was struggling with, and it's very casual. Now, stay with me, okay? This is a guy who serves all the time. He has a business. He has kids. He has a, a wife. He, he's got a lot of responsibilities. He's part of our leadership team. He's a volunteer, and his wife signed up to go pray for someone in the hospital that was lonely in between services on a Sunday. And he texts a, a group of guys that he's in accountability with, and he says, guys, would you pray for me? I don't have a lot of compassion. My wife signed me up to go pray for somebody in the hospital, but I don't really feel like going. What would you do? It's a great, honest prayer. How amazing. First of all, the authenticity of this, the vulnerability, also how, how much of a sinner he is, I can't even tell you. It's just, <laughs> I said, I said, bro, you do compassion, period, even though you don't feel like it. Mood follows action, to quote David Goggins. Um, and, and I was like, you do the thing that you, you know Jesus would do, even when you don't feel like it, and let God change your heart. And he's like, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I'm going to go. Thanks for kicking me in the, the rear end. I'm moving to go. And, and then he, he wrote, here's the real thing. And he sent me a picture of Surfline. And the waves were firing. The, con <laughs> the conditions are in the purple category. They're so good, they're in purple. Not green, not red. They're as good as it gets, which never happens in SoCal. It's rarely purple in our region. And he's like, this is what I'm sacrificing. I'm like, great. Now don't tell anyone that you're sacrificing it and do it out of love for Jesus. And then it becomes a spiritual act of worship. You lay it down. A couple hours later, he texts, I'm so glad I went. God did all this stuff. My point is our hearts are regularly divided. He doesn't feel it, but he does it. Some of you have no feeling. Your hearts are so hard towards the needs around you, you don't feel at all. You're so filled with bitterness and anger. You're so filled with self-focus. You don't even know how to feel towards other people. Don't start with feeling. Start with obedience. Start with living generously, living sacrificially. Do the opposite of what you feel. Let your heart be transformed over that. Are you with me? The third issue is a culture of contempt. And I'm just going to summarize it. Um, basically, we live in a, a, a time where we have so much contempt towards one another. It's what's produced this type of divide in our church and our nation. There's a great quote from Sebastian Young, Younger, but let's, let's skip it. You can get that in another service. Um, go to the definition of contempt, Ari, if, that, if that's all right. Contempt. It says this, uh, con contempt is defined as the feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. To consider someone or something to be unworthy of respect or attention. He makes the case, this author, that we live with contempt towards one another, meaning that we demonize one another as, as enemies, which is why in the church we can make divisions that you don't agree with my political views, I can say you're evil and I can hate you. Or you say the word like social justice or compassion and you think we're a woke church when actually God created justice. That is what he says in Genesis 15 and 18, that his very character is righteousness and justice. And the entire theme of the Old Testament is how justice is lived out in the people of God until who fulfills it? Jesus. And who, who fulfills it after Jesus? The church. So the question we will be judged for is not the songs we sing. It's not the theology we believe. It's the love lived in how we treat one another.
And when you go to Acts chapter four, when the spirit of God gives birth to this movement, the spirit of God gives birth to this eschatological moment where the people of God are filled. They don't say great, they were doing such good songs and teaching, they marketed with conferences. They added multiple services and buildings and then they did this kids program that went nationwide. It said God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy among them. That there were no needs among them. I remember a couple years ago, um, uh, I was at Franklin, we had two services, this is before COVID, and I remember I was going up to preach the second service, sitting in the front row, and I heard in my head and heart $1,200. But all I heard was $1,200. I didn't know what it meant. It was like, in this, this, for me, words of knowledge is like a sense that I get. And I, I didn't know if it was a word of knowledge or not. And then I got up, and I'm like, I don't know what that was. I'm just going to start preaching. I started reading the text, and I couldn't preach. I, had to, I, got, I was stumbling through the word. I'm like, okay, time out. Church, I'm so sorry. I'm going to sit in silence. Just be quiet for a second. Talk to God. Talk to each other. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to wait. I, I don't know what God's doing because I'm struggling to preach. And I was like, I literally was like, Jesus, you got to tell me what's going on. And I heard as clear as day, $1,200 is needed for a single mom that's visiting who has an eviction notice. So I'm like, okay. I said, church, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but let's just do this so I can get back to preaching. <laughs> is there a single mom here with, that has an eviction notice with her that needs $1,200 for rent? And this woman starts bawling. She holds up the eviction notice. First time in our church, four kids in the service. And she was, it was a word of knowledge for her. And I was like, all right, that's God. You're real. Okay, this is good. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I, I know he's real, but like, they're like, really, really real. And I was like, okay, how about this? How about we, how about we just pass a bucket? And if you're here and your rent's paid and you have enough food in the fridge and you have some cash, which I know that will be a miracle in itself because no one carries cash. <laughs> we'll just stick, stick money in the bucket and we're going to give that money to this lady. And, and we all pass it in the second service. It was a small crowd and exactly $1,200 was given. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That was easy. Like what if God wanted to meet the needs of this community because this church was like, we're gonna take seriously the call to live our love for God towards one another. Every time you read about the word compassion uh, or, or read about caring for the needs, it's always in context of a covenanted community. Yes, we should care for the world, absolutely. But when God invites the Old Testament, people of God, Israel, and then to the church, he's calling the local body to be the community where there are no needs among us. That the move of God in this church will be matched by our generosity poured out to each other. Not because you got an email with a Facebook post and an Instagram post and, a, and an app from Garden Church, but because your life can't help itself. Because you know love is not about the songs you see on, sing on Sunday, but it's about how you live towards your brothers and sisters. I just put this bucket up in the last service, and I, I, people put money in it. Um, <laughs> and, and it's funny because I told that story I taught, I've, I've shared this story in other communities, and it, this is what happens. Um, I, I told this story, the first time I ever told it in public was at this conference for 
10,000 adults. It's called New Wine. And it was started by John Wimber during the Vineyard Movement. They went to the Anglican Church and they had revival. And there's so many churches getting filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they put on this conference. John Wimber seeded that event that's been going on for 30 years. Soul Survivor, Momentum, all these things came out of it. I, I, I got to preach in their, in their main session lots of days. And one of the days I talked about generosity by the Spirit. And I just talked about the story of the single mom getting $1,200. And just how our little community took, you know, was living generously in the service. And then what we started doing as a liturgy, for those of you that weren't a part of our church, is we started passing a bucket twice. And we just said, hey, we're going to pass this. This is for cash. If you have money in here and you want to bless your brothers and sisters, put cash in. And if you're here and you don't have enough, like your rent's not paid, like your medical bills are overwhelming your family in the season of, you just take out whatever. Just take it out, no question, just take it out. And back in the day, our church was growing because we were the church that gave the money away. <laughs> you come, like most people given, they were taking cash out and we just said, take it. So our church was growing. I told that story and at the end, we did ministry time and then people were like, hey, pastor, I've got, I got some money here. This is 10,000 people. I said, great, someone just gave me, this young girl just gave me 20 pounds. If you're here and you need 20 pounds, I'm gonna put it in the bucket, you just come get it. And then I'm like, we're gonna wait because we want the Lord to minister to our church. And someone came up and took it and just started weeping and we prayed for it. And then it was like this exchange. Youth pastor that needed a car was given a car. It was like the most money, it was just, it was like the spirit of God was so powerfully at work that there were no needs among us. Imagine that kind of church. I can imagine it because I've been a part of one like that. At one point, God was moving so powerfully in our community for a season that we just kept passing the bucket twice and God moved. But you want to know what happened? It wasn't ordained. It wasn't like we figured this out. We have a policy. It was the compassion of the church. It was embodied in the disciples of Jesus. So that's what I'm calling you to. In John, uh, the epistles, he puts it this way. I'll just close with this. First John chapter three. I love what he says. He says, look, uh, do you want to go to first John chapter? He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Oh, yes. I love, yeah, I can worship that. But then he takes, he takes love moving from singing songs in Kumbaya in a worship setting. He says, okay, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Time out. Wait a second. I prefer like, you know, just singing some songs here, talking about the idea of love being this abstract concept. That's good for me. No, now you want to know what it is? Your life is cruciformed. It looks like Jesus on the cross towards the ant that hurt you, towards the coworker that robbed your, um, whatever, robbed something, <laughs> your promotion, <laughs> robbed you of your promotion. That's where I was going with that one. The employee that took advantage of you, the dad that never showed up, the sister who, Stop talking to you because she disagreed with your views during COVID. That church member that was very certain of eschatological things <laughs> and made you think that that's how it should be. And if you didn't preach or believe in that, you're a liar and a false teacher. Whatever some of you might have those things. How we love those people. Are you with me? 
That's not enough though. <laughs> I wish we could get off the hook. If anyone has material possessions, any of you got things? Any of you guys have things? And sees a brother or sister, and that's, a con- that's for in the church, in your community that you've covenanted to, and has no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He connects your stuff with your love for God and more importantly, God's love in you. There's not a clean way to end this (laughs) other than to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Can I give you a couple of thoughts? Some of you need a new heart. Some of you need the spirit of God to come inside of you and make your heart soft again. Just bring the callous walls down so you can feel. Some of you need to identify that the pain that you've experienced and the trauma of the past has hardened your heart. And you can't live compassionately until you learn to heal. Can we all stand? Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to Garden.Church. God bless you.